Welcome, everybody, to episode three, Blood from Stem Cells. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What is going on, Yosef? What's up, my How's man? How's it going, Chris? Uh, we're still going strong here. We're going to keep building this podcast, and it uh, looks like our audience is growing, too. So thank you all out there on iTunes, subscribing, leaving good feedback. We've uh, really enjoyed the comments so far. So uh, we'll try and keep it going with uh, some great interviews and hopefully some good topics. What do you say? Yeah, man. I uh, just just a couple ways that people can reach us for suggestions or to contribute to the show. We're on uh, we're on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, and we're also you can email us uh, Stem Cell Podcast at gmail dot com. So uh, either email us or tweet us and let us know what your thoughts are. How you know you want to contribute to the show or call in or you've got some topics or ideas. We're always willing to uh, talk to the audience. We uh, we had a good show last week. We or uh, last episode we we talked to Doctor. Uh, Jacob Hanna from the Weizmann Institute talking about reprogramming and uh, talking about his paper. And we, Yosa and I ranted a little bit about the government shutdown, which is still currently underway. Um, and today uh, we're going to interview uh, a, a really fun, uh, a smart science, stem cell scientist, Dr. Daylon James. He's a friend of ours. He's a really great listen and a great, great interview uh, from every time we've talked to him before in the past, so I'm sure he'll do the same today. So we're going to kick it off with the Yosef's uh, Science Roundup to give us a little perspective in the world of science. So why don't you take it down, Yos? Yeah, lots of news going on. And by the way, I just want to give a little correction for uh, the protein that I was talking about for Dr. Eric Kandel's uh, Alzheimer's gene, related gene. I said, RB80 and it's actually AB so you can see how if you're listening to a podcast AB48 uh, sounds like 8048 so that's his gene these genes need better names I always thought I like FGF2 is like the worst name for an important gene like that it should be like you know stem cell survival factor <laughs> I know. you know instead of fibroblast growth factor but then we got cool names like sonic hedgehog so I know, you I know I know my favorite yeah that one brings me back to uh the old sega Genesis. Sega. Sega. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, but you know, I guess they stopped uh, calling genes after cartoon characters and video games, so that you don't get a diagnosis from a doctor saying your son is suffering from Sonic Hedgehog disorder. Your, <laughs> or, <laughs> your son has the Super Mario syndrome. Yeah, m- Mortal Kombat <laughs> <laughs> disease. Anyhow, so um. Yeah, let's uh, hop into some news. We got some stem cell, I mean, sorry, non-stem cell related news. We got the Nobel Prize given out. Um, Remember the Lasker Award winner that we mentioned about two episodes ago? Uh, Thomas Sudoff. Sudoff. He went on from the Lasker, which is kind of like the prequel to the uh, Nobel Prize. It's sort of like, I don't know, what's the equivalent? The BAFTA compared to an Oscar. (laughs) Um, So so he won the Lasker this year and the Nobel Prize. So not bad for uh, Dr. Pretty, Sudoff. Pretty nice there. Yeah. So him and uh, Sheckman from UC Berkeley and Rothman from Yale, they all got it for uh, vesicle transport, which anybody who knows basic cell biology is uh, important from essentially, how would you describe it? The way cells communicate to each other without electricity? 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's just it's a it's a way it's the way uh, cells communicate through release. They package up their little signals in these vesicles, and these vesicles get shipped around. Yeah, and they're, that's they're yeah. like little balloons, little water balloons, full of uh, you know, typically something like a neurotransmitter. That's how neurons talk to each other. Uh, they, it, one of two ways: the quick way is electricity. The second way is uh, neurotransmitters, um, and so they and those are typically packed into these vesicles and uh dr sudoff and colleagues are really outlined the whole snare complex and snap 25 what, do you remember all that stuff the uh synapto- i used to love that synaptophysman synaptotagman yeah all that yeah. stuff so he's basically uh outlined every single step uh from that water balloon full of uh neurotransmitter to its uh fusion to the cell membrane and release into to the extracellular space. So congrats to uh, Stanford and Dr. Sudoff and everybody else who uh, was involved with the work. I'm yeah. sure they're popping yeah. champagne. Well, very well, well-deserved. I mean, we're, we're, Joseph and I are stem cell biologists in the field of neuroscience. And, um, you know, this, this guy's discovery, this group's discovery was really, uh, you know, how nerve cells communicate, really. And so, you know, I mean, and that's that's basic basic neuroscience one one. So well deserved and congratulations to everybody involved. Yes. Okay. Moving on. Um, did you? You and I are both football fans. I like the uh, New England Patriots. Uh, th- I should say for our international audience, uh, this is American football, not soccer football. And can, um, can I not? Can I not divulge who I root for at this current time? Yeah. Um, you know what? If uh, we won't mention them, but um, they're not doing too well this year. No, they're though. not. They're a New York. They're a New York football team that's currently uh, not won a game. And as we don't a, have to mention who they are. And as a New England Patriots fan, I'm kind of enjoying this uh, demise. But anyhow, <laughs> sure you are. <laughs> uh, there was a documentary on Frontline where they um, talked about CTE, chronic traumatic uh, encephalopathy. Lopathy, mm. I believe it's called. And basically, it's these tau deposits that are being. Um, found in the brains of ex-football players and um it was a, a fascinating two-hour documentary uh that's on frontline's website frontline.org or com one of those two and um it's really fascinating the science behind this and the doctor who discovered it this african doctor and how he was discredited and now they've got uh, uh boston university got a grant from the nfl a million dollars to study this and they have this woman there i forget her name eggers or something she um basically looked at 46 brains so far all of which were donated and probably you know there's some bias there the family was suspecting that uh maybe they are are affected but out of the 46 brains she's looked at she's found cte which is a relatively new condition especially when it comes to football she's found these tau deposits uh it's a very distinct it's different than frontal temporal dementia it's it's a very specific sort of pattern of of uh, tau deposits, uh, which is similar to what you find in uh, other neurodegenerative uh, diseases such as Alzheimer's. Um, she's finding these tau deposits in up to 45 out of the 46 brains she looked at, wow. which is, uh, I mean, it's it, if I had a kid, I would not have him. I played football in my, my skinny butt, played football, and, but... I'm thinking that was a mistake. I remember getting you played football too, right, Chris? 
Yeah, I played, and I was like one of these reckless kids out there, not just running around and diving into piles. I wasn't, I wasn't really, uh, which is obviously not good. But this is the this is the problem now. You know, Yos, the NFL is a huge brand; they make uh, billions of dollars, and you have these professional ex football players coming out and saying, "I won't have my children play football," and it's causing a big stir. You know, my whole thing is this. Listen, if you're involved in a profession who where your job is to bang your head into someone else's head at full speed, you you know what the reper- I mean it's not going to be good for you in some way long term. And now the scientific evidence is coming out, but um, it's going to be around. I mean, we're not we're not losing football. They're going to change they're changing rules and they're changing things to try to make sure it's more safe, but uh, this is going to be a problem and um, what I find Yosef, this is probably another story for another another day, but a lot of these players are now, you know, the, the, there was a major lawsuit against the National Football League from ex-players talking about their chronic illness, the chronic illnesses and injuries that they have. Um, and I think it was just settled and they all got money. And my, my only thing is that they know what they're getting into. They know it's dangerous. They know it can cause life traumatic injury. Uh, how, how can they then after that willingly agreeing to that be suing? Well, uh, so that's, that's, if you watch the documentary, a lot of the things that are wrong is that the NFL put out pamphlets saying that football does not even does not cause is not known to cause any sort of neurological like they basically denied it. The opposite of what the science was saying, they they put forward. And um, actually, some of the. Uh, a couple of the Giants doctors who were on this board were the enablers of this um, policy. But moving forward, I, I, it looks like that they settled. They're, they're taking this seriously, but they're sort of doing the let the science uh, – figure yeah. it out the the science delay even though i mean even if that's a biased sample 45 out of 46 is uh, is just an astonishing number no uh, that's crazy that's wild you, wow. you can't even find that if you suspected that somebody had alzheimer's you know it may be a different type of you know 45 out of 46 is really a high hit rate and uh they've looked at anybody from junior say to uh, this 18 year old kid who had it an 18 year Old, who had yes. tau deposits he killed himself but like there are all these cases of people they they sort of their lives fall apart and they eventually kill themselves and thank god yeah somebody yeah. like junior Seau saved his brain they think that's why he didn't shoot himself in the head uh because he wanted to donate his brain to science. imagine that man imagine that imagine like you going through that towards the end and you about to kill yourself and you're like you know what i'm gonna do this but save my brain so they can do something about this that's pretty wild if that was the case yeah so that's that and the NFL settled for seven hundred and sixty-five million, I think it was, which wow. is a drop in the. I mean, they make ten billion a year, so that's like a, a tax write-off almost for them. And uh, they're settling, but not admitting guilt. And no, uh, they had to do that. They had to settle. They just get it done. They don't want it in the limelight anymore, and they just kind of want to move on. So they're just going to make the payment, move on, and that's that. Well, the the neuroscience behind it is fascinating. That you would see these sort of Alzheimer's-like deposits in young people. It's really and 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 how it results in a adverse behavior. It's it's kind of fascinating from a molecular and neuroscience standpoint. But uh, and, and as a football fan and an ex-player, I'm I'm hoping I don't have a CTE. <laughs> But I, 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 didn't, I didn't play enough for <laughs> for me to I, – I just remember making one tackle, and it hurt me more than it hurt the guy. That's for sure. 
That's so. typically what happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on, uh, scientists have uh, looked at whale ear earwax. Can you believe it? Whales like, have earwax. Yes, and 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 it's like the tree rings of uh, you know they can do all sorts of testing from uh, whale earwax, uh, looking at hor- you know all sorts of levels of. Uh, hormones and uh contaminants in the ocean you could just look at the timeline of a whale through its earwax which i thought was fascinating and something i should bring up on this science roundup what do they do do they have a q-tip they go uh, in there with like a big q-tip <laughs> i don't know but i imagine it being quite thick i'm not sure so, but these samples are hard to get in a lot of museums and uh other um you know like sea world they have all this stuff but you can only get it from uh, dead and uh, dead whales. Uh, you can't really collect it from a live whale. So, um, but That's it's cool. it's interesting. yeah, it's a new way of looking at uh, whale development. And since they live so long, there's uh, you you know it's sort of like the tree rings of the ocean, which is which is kind of cool. Um, moving on, uh, you may be interested in this next study. There was a gene. Uh, associated with a happy marriage. Scientists at UC Berkeley found that a gene called 5-HTTLPR is a gene... um this was published in the journal Emotion, so take it for what There's it's There's a worth. journal of emotion? Yeah, it's called Emotion is the journal. And uh, they found that the two short alleles, when both partners had uh, short alleles for this gene, uh, consistently uh, it resulted in a happier marriage. Uh, about 17% of couples had this short allele gene. And then if you both had the long uh, version of this gene, you're both miserable. So I, th- I thought That's that was so kind of... yeah. So- <laughs> who knows what's going on there do you guys select each other or does you know is there any sort of epigenetics going on who knows what's going on with this So, like before you get married now you should have some sort of genetic screen and just make sure that they don't have the long allele because if they do then it's just like look it's just a matter of time i gotta find someone with a short allele yeah you know i the screening things uh you know i i had this conversation with a friend recently about uh tay Sachs and screening uh your children and embryos um um, which we can maybe discuss on another time uh, the 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 philosophical implications of choosing uh, a non defective child, but where does that end? If I had Tay Sachs in my family or Huntington's, I would want to make sure my child did not, you know, die at three or thirty from right. this, you know, neuro- but where does it end? I mean, some people want blue eyes, or you know, a boy or a girl, or the you know, six I foot know. tall. This is, this is an it's an interesting discussion because I am um, I have a, a son, a child, and I remember this discussion when you know you go for these pre. When when the woman's pregnant, you go for these screens. PGD, you know, the pregenetic. Yeah, they, uh, right. They can like tell you like if what's the incidence that there might be a Down syndrome occurrence and like you know nothing is guaranteed, but like they can tell you like look you have a there's, there's you know there's a pretty good chance your child is going to have Down syndrome and, and at that point what do you do? I mean like do you even want to know? Like do do you even want test? Like these the, these are the these are the things about these kind of tests that happen in utero. It's it's like a weird thing. Like you're playing. 
I don't like to use the word playing God, but you're now, you know, what do you do? This is a, this is an interesting discussion to have. We could talk about it. I know, I know. Personally, for me, I would want a kid who did not have something like, say, autism. I would like to, you know, communicate with my child and play football or whatever, basketball, definitely not football now, but um, basketball or baseball or something and have a conversation and, you know, be able to hug him or her without, you know, the, the some of them are very autistic kids are sensitive to touch and, you know. They can't communicate so well, and obviously uh, they're special people, and you got to wonder what's going on in their minds because sometimes it's a wiring thing. Who knows what's going on? But uh, it's you want to be able to communicate with your child uh, for sure. And but where do you stop? Where does it stop? Do you say Tay Sachs? That's reasonable, but um, you know autism or or trisomy thirteen twenty one or something like that. Where does it stop? Where do you and and then you can make an argument that we can select out you know breed out these sort of defects like Huntington's if we were able to select our children uh, to remove these genes. Uh, So. It may be the future of breeding or yeah. just some sick, uh, I don't you know, know man. brave I, new I, world. I, 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 I getting- can only imagine it'll be in like 20, 25, 50, you know, 50 years from now. You can choose the color eyes, the hair. You can choose. So it'll be like going into a store, like custom child. You know, yeah. it's going to be weird. It's like that movie Gattaca. So let's move on. Um, giant, uh, Japanese scientists found a, a jet lag cure through interfering with vasopressin receptors this was published in science magazine and uh jet lag is you know affects a lot of people out there so that's interesting that uh vasopressin uh receptors are involved with that and they were able to show quite nicely i'm not sure how they do that in mice but they essentially put them off by eight hours and uh when they blocked vaso vasopressin or vasopressin sig- uh receptors they were able to um, essentially wipe clean the slate uh, for for uh, jet lag. Moving on, uh, University of Queensland scientists uh, published in uh, the PNAS or Proceedings uh, National Academy of Science, uh, not to be confused with the the physical organ on the man. You know what's you know you know what's funny though, Yosef. A friend of mine was listening to the podcast, and he's not a scientist. And he's like, he's like, you guys really published to a journal of penis? I said, no, it's not. It's not penis. It's penis. And so I'm, I'll make that clear the next time. That was my friend, my boy Stacks out there. Oh What's up, my Stacks? gosh, that's so uh, funny. <laughs> that's so uh, yeah, so it's so it's penis, not penis. Sorry, penis. Uh, University of Queensland uh, used uh, Chinese red-headed centipede toxin to reduce uh, pain, uh, and basically they were able to show that. Um, it was the pain uh, was associated with sodium channels, and that this uh, centipede toxin was able to block pain through these sodium channels, and it had very little side effects in mice. So uh, maybe a possible new pain treatment, which for anybody in uh, who works in a hospital knows that pain management is a major, major, major. Um, yeah, problem sure. and um, how to how to it, that's like the billion dollar pill for sure. Besides, uh, you know, any sort of erectile dysfunction or <laughs> a Spanish fly, if they were able to make that for women, uh, that this pain is is a huge Spanish one. Spanish fly. Yeah, if it, pain, hair growth, and anything to do with sex are billion dollar pills. 
Um, so moving on, um, I thought that was interesting though. Um, moving on, there was a new bacterial phylum discovered in uh, human feces. You know, I'm really into the gut bacteria or microbiota, and they call it uh, melanin bacteria, melano bacteria and it's related to photosynthetic cyanobacteria so this is a whole new phylum discovered in our human poop so i thought that was interesting too and that i want to discover a phylum that's cool as hell yeah and they uh the these uh, uh these bacteria probably provide vitamin b and vitamin k for us so um cool. another commensalate and a couple more real quick uh gsk and bill gates uh GlaxoSmithKline and bill gates are set uh for 2015 malaria vaccine the one that i, w- I mentioned about two podcasts ago uh maybe coming online sooner than we think uh 2015 so that's exciting considering how many people that affects Yep. So, um, and then uh, I think this was in April, Magdalena Goetz's group, uh, G-O-T-Z, um, she was able to show in a paper in Cell that a gene called TRNP1 inhibits gyrification, um, the development of folds in, uh, in mice, essentially. And this gene uh, stops the radial glia from... Uh, continuously dividing and so by inhibiting the gene you can produce uh uh folds in the mice brains so i thought that was interesting too that's yeah i didn't see that that's pretty awesome yeah it's from april uh if you just uh type in goats g-o-t-z and t-r-n-p-1 which is the gene i'm sure you'll find it and that is an interesting study um uh, and then finally for everybody sorry for everyone out there the uh uh, mouse brains are what they call lysencephalic. It means that they're smooth. They don't have the folds that the human brain does. And um, it's believed that human brains have adopted this fold, this this kind of structure, because we're humans and we have we're able to think and we have cognition. And so these folds are really key for really the human process of brain and brain development. So that study would would suggest that there's a there's these genes that are involved in this kind of fold structure and so forth. Sorry, Yos, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, no. That's I think uh, it's important to put the science into context. And, you know, maybe they'll be producing mice eventually. That'll start reading back to us the results. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see what goes on with that uh, uh, field of study. And um, last but not least... Um, I'm back to the bacteria again. So, uh, actually, this is not bacteria. This is viruses, um, phages, the, the, the viruses that infect bacteria. The, uh, scientists were able to show that, um, the mucus, remember I mentioned the mucus, how it protects us, and this gene MUC2 is, uh, gives, uh, at least in the, in our stomachs, its protective quality. They showed that, um, mucus that had phages, um, so they exposed lung tissue to E. coli and, um, lung tissue that was essentially coated with mucus that had phages in it versus mucus that didn't have phages. These viruses that infect bacteria, uh, the phages had a protective quality from the E. coli infection. So I thought that was interesting that, uh, viruses not only can bacteria protect us, uh, or provide, uh, things like vitamins and all sorts of other, um, 
commensalate activity uh, that phages or viruses can do uh, maybe be protective as well. So it's an interesting little study. And that's it for the science wrap up. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. All so. right. Well, thank you, uh, thank you very much for that roundup. I think I heard from a lot of people they really like that roundup. It's a really good, quick, rapid-fire way to get the new points in. So, thanks for taking a time out for that. And let's uh, let's move on here. All right. So uh, this episode, Yos, we're going to do it a little bit different. We're going to bring in our guest early. He's going to hang out for the rest of the uh, the show. So our guest today uh, is a friend and colleague, Dr. Daylon James, uh, assistant professor for the Department of Re- Reproductive and Regenerative Medicine at Wild Cornell Medical. Uh, welcome aboard, there, Day. What's going on, man? Not a lot, my brother. It's good to hear your voice. How are things at Cornell Med slash grad, my alma mater? We're holding it down without you, my friend, but it's <laughs> it's, it's not easy. We miss you dearly. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so uh, why don't you uh, give our audience a little introduction to what your lab is up to? All right. Well, uh, I focus on two major branches of my research, which are cardiovascular cells, uh, which are the cells in the heart, the muscle cells, cardiomyocytes, which help it pump. Also, vascular cells, the cells that make up blood vessels, which are the conduits for blood as they flow through the body, out of the heart, to the lungs, etc. But what I'm going to talk to you about today is the other branch of my research, which is hematopoietic cells, or blood cells, because uh, they've been in the literature of late with some pretty exciting results. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, the blood field as a, you know, as a neuroscientist is sort of like this scary zone. And especially as a stem cell scientist, it seems like uh, one of the hardest thing to do is to make blood from human embryonic stem cells. Maybe you could shed some light into the state of the field. Yes. Well, it's been a major challenge. Well, first of all, it's highly sought after as a cell type because Clinically speaking, it may be the closest to therapeutic application because as an organ system, you could think of blood as all the cell types that are comprised in the blood are, you know, your immune cells, the red blood cells that shuttle around the oxygen. Uh, There's also the inflammatory process. So when you cut yourself, you need the clotting factors to work so that you can stop the bleed and then you need the whole regenerative and wound healing process, all while keeping away invaders, you know, bacteria or viruses. So there's all kinds of goodies in the blood that are applicable to multiple diseases. And most importantly, all of those cells within the blood come from a single cell, the hematopoietic stem cell, which can give rise to all the cell types present in the blood. So it's been really highly sought after because unlike some other cell types or tissues, where you need to make up a whole motley mix of, of different cells to really treat the organ. With the blood, theoretically, and it's even been proven in practice, you can take a single cell, as long as it's a true hematopoietic stem cell, and it'll recolonize the entire hematopoietic system. Someone who's had a ablative chemotherapy, for instance, to get rid of a leukemia or some other type of blood-borne path disease, you could recolonize their entire hematopoietic system with a single cell. So for that reason, it's been highly sought after. And also, in terms of some of the other biotechnological applications of blood, recently at your institute, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, Michelle Satterline has kind of helped to pioneer a process of using the blood and engineering it so that it can attack tumors. Or you could take the T cells 
these immune cells that are these cytotoxic factors and engineer them so they home in on specific types of cancer and get rid of them while sparing all the healthy cells in your body, doing a kind yeah, of smart I, bomb. I think I saw that in, what was that, Nature Biotech, Maria Thamelli's paper? Is right. She just actually used ES cells, which had these chimeric antigen receptors in them, uh, which are, allow those the, the ES-derived blood cells to target uh, a tumor. The real challenge, though, as it has been and for, has been for decades now, is that it's really difficult to get that bona fide hematopoietic stem cell. If you look at like a lineage tree or you think of a, a, in terms of a lineage tree, much like you see in embryo development where you come from a single egg and you become all the 300 plus cell types in the body, the blood cell, the stem cell is this one cell that gives rise to all the different intermediate progenitor cells that can then give rise to a certain subset of all the blood cells in the body. But only the hematopoietic stem cell can give rise to all the cells and down the lineage tree, you have progenitors that have differential lineage potential. So, so maybe you could explain something to me. I know in terms of the way I think of it, there's two types. There's the myeloid and the lymphoid, I guess, the, the T cells and the B cells in the lymph column that do all the immune system functions, and then the myeloid, which are just the, you know, the hemoglobin type of blood cells. Is that, is that generally speaking? Yeah, that's just about right. Within the myeloid fraction, you have... The red blood cells, which, you know, convey oxygen. You have megakaryocytes, which uh, are the cells that produce platelets that allow for blood clotting. You also have some kind of immune effectors as well that, that can uh, fight off, that it's part of the innate immune response that fight off bacteria, for instance. But the lymphoid cells have, uh, is another branch, as you mentioned, that is part of the acquired immune response, the B cells, the T cells. The things that allow us to react to a foreign invader uh, with a more learned and acquired response. And these are the cells that are stimulated by, like, vaccines, for instance. So that if you take an attenuated uh, uh, immunogen, uh, antigen or some kind of virus, that the next time when it comes in full force, your body will, will be ready for it and it'll knock it out quick. And um, in terms of uh, the development, did, there are two regions that they're born in, right? The blood in the in the marrow in the in the bone, and then uh, I guess in the, yes. the well, thymus, so, correct? So yes, there's there's all different sites in which hematopoietic cells either arise or they're educated. So in the thymus, blood cells are educated to become the lymphoid component. In the adult, there's different sites of primary hematopoiesis, the main one being the bone marrow, but also there's this extramedullary hematopoiesis, it's called like in the spleen, uh, where you can mobilize stem cells. But really, strictly speaking, the meat of the issue is where these cells come from during embryonic development, okay? As you're being formed, there's different waves of hematopoiesis. In the early embryo, in the, the yolk sac, it's called, as soon as you start to get big as an embryo and your tissues start to grow, you need to have a blood supply so they continue to be fed. You need circulation. So there's these early effector cells of, in the hematopoietic complement that just shuttle oxygen in the early phase. And then as you move forward during development, you get progressively more complex progenitor and stem cells that can give rise to more of the complement of hematopoietic cells. 
And specifically, there's a tiny little site within the embryo called the aorta gonad mesonephros. Oh, God, region, I love okay? that. I love that term, by the yeah, way. The I love that, too. I do, too. I want yeah, to just I know. talk you to love... people and just say mesonephros. Can I just walk around all day and just be like, what's going on, mesonephros? How you doing, man? I think you're more interested in the gonad part of that, my friend. <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> Honestly, the, the real challenge uh, for scientists and to approximate that cell type because it's such a tiny region of the embryo. So it's hard to recapitulate the signaling milieu that gives rise to that specialized cell. So how does the AGM or the aortic or aorta gonad mesonephros, how does that differ from, so that's a unique site separate from the blood uh, uh, development in the bone, correct? Well, so the aorta gonad mesonephros, say it again, AGM, AGM. That uh, cell that arises in the AGM actually ultimately colonizes the bone marrow. So all the bone marrow cells, all the cells that are circulating in your body today, the ones that are in the bone that are going to replenish your blood supply if you have you know, a lot of blood loss or if you have some kind of radioablative chemotherapy, all those cells ult- are original, originate from the AGM region. So they're one and the same. It's just at different time points in development. And where that is the AGM a- region? Where is that AGM? Is it in the, is the AGM in the, uh, like by the heart? Uh, where is this in development? Where is this structure? So the- if you're looking at an embryo, mm-hmm. it's kind of behind the liver during development, but it, it actually stems from a, part of the embryo called the dorsal aorta, you know, the aorta being the region of the heart. So it's, and interestingly enough, though, this blood cell that is the primeval hematopoietic stem cell that gives rise to everything, before it's a blood cell, it's actually an endothelial cell. So it really dovetails well with my whole subject matter, which is based in studying vascular endothelial cells, the cells that give rise to blood vessels. And the dorsal aorta is really a big blood vessel, and then a little, a few subset of those endothelial cells or vascular cells within that blood vessel bud off and become these primary hematopoietic stem cells, and then move into circulation. So, so then, so then, Daylon, the strategy then is to take human embryonic stem cells or a pluripotent cell, um, uh, turn it into an endothelial cell, and then. A subpopulation of those endothelium would be um, hemogenic, if you will, and give rise to hematopoietic stem cells. That, that would be the idea, and that's kind of what you looked at in your uh, in the paper that was published in January, right? Um, uh, talking about a kind of a, a strategy that you can do this and observe this in a dish. Exactly. Uh, what I was working on in that paper was trying to define the distinct waves of hem- hemogenesis that occur by separating endothelial cells out from embryonic stem cell cultures and trying to define at what temporal point, so at what time during development you have cells that are either part of that more primitive wave that is restricted to just the red blood cells and megakaryocytes versus the later wave cells, which ultimately can give rise to myeloid and more expansive range of, of hematopoietic cell types. And we stopped short of getting a true hematopoietic stem cell. But I think the real challenge there, it's not just about getting the timing right, getting it 
late as opposed to early, but also getting the, the few endothelial, hemogenic endothelial cells that actually make up that dorsal aorta equivalent. So um, la- last, last time I checked on this field, there was like one cell paper that not many people could recreate in terms of turning human embryonic stem cells into blood progenitors. Is that still the dismal fate of the field, the uh, state of the field right now? Yes, I'm afraid so. I think that although very compelling results have been shown specifically in that cell stem cell paper you mentioned, uh, it's been difficult for other investigators to reproduce that result. Although a lot of groups have made great st- strides in trying to break down into the cells of interest. Michelle Satterline, for instance, I thought came up with a very unique idea, which uh, other groups have also coalesced upon, which is if you take a cell that's already of a certain type, like a T cell, for instance, and then you make that T cell into an induced pluripotent stem cell, then the signature of that induced pluripotent stem cell having arisen from a T cell allows it to then more uh, preferentially become T cells during differentiation. And these T cells are really the important business end of his cytotoxic tumor chimeric antigen receptor therapy, which is surely going to revolutionize the treatment of cancer. Now, don't these so just, T-cells already have their own VDJ recombination? I just I remember that from my um, early yes. days. Yes. So they, they have their own special genome, essentially, that's been rearranged during development in the thymus, uh, I guess a process called somatic hypermutation. Uh, yes. they've, they've already gone through that, and therefore they, they, each T cell is sort of its own species, if you will, in terms of genome. So you're re- even though they're more biased towards the blood lineage, they, they're still kind of unique um, in terms of their genome? Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, they're kind of pre-configured to respond to a specific antigen. But you can get these induced pluripotent stem cells from... T cells at, at different uh, stages of their development and maturation, hmm. such that you can get them either post or pre VDJ recombination. Although many groups have shown now that the, the cells, like you mentioned uh, and alluded to, that they're kind of locked in to that specific uh, genetic subtype that has already been hypermutated. So, 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 so just, just sorry. So, just so I can just kind of summarize this for myself and for people out there that might not. Uh, truly understand. So basically, people can make what uh, could appear like a hematopoietic progenitor stem cell from human embryonic stem cells, right? They can create a cell that might have some of the markers, but the difficulty is producing a cell that could contribute to the, all the cells of the blood lineage. Is that, is that really what the problem is? Yes, that's the okay. problem, is getting to that unique hematopoietic stem cell subtype that arises from the e- AGM Okay. Getting that from ES cells has been very difficult. Uh, so in an effort to kind of bypass that, uh, other researchers have taken different approaches. Um, one in particular is to directly convert in the similar manner as embryonic stem cells can be made from a somatic or skin cell called an induced pluripotent stem cell. Some groups have started to take blood cells or take skin cells and just directly reprogram them to a hematopoietic stem cell. And although the efforts have fallen a bit short of arising at a 
hematopoietic stem cell, the race is on. And a lot of groups have made significant progress in turning a skin cell into a multipotent progenitor that can give rise to myeloid and erythroid type cells. And just recently, George Daly's group has shown that he can take an actual blood cell that is not stem, a uh, uh, kind of subtype of blood cell, hematopoietic cell from embryonic stem cell differentiation. And because that's like a near neighbor, it's already in the neighborhood. It's already a blood cell. Then reprogram that to a cell that actually has more potency or lineage potential. And he's just published that and showed that they could actually undergo the globin switching from a more embryonic or fetal type blood cell to an adult blood cell, uh, which I think is an important step forward in reprogramming cells to more potent and target like cells, like uh, uh, specifically a hematopoietic stem cell. Now, blood cells to me are un- uh, unique, at least in that they don't have DNA. They just sort of, they're like these donut cells that carry, uh, you know, the heme and the, the heme binds to oxygen and blah, blah, blah. But um, the, is anybody making these sort of DNA-free red blood cells in a dish as it is anybody making that from stem cells? Yes, yes. So one of the, the early, the way the blood lineage goes uh, is that there's nucleated hematopoietic cells and then specifically one subtype of blood cell, the red blood cell, or late aspect, uh, late in its maturation process, it ejects the nucleus and becomes the, the, not, the, the donut type cell you're talking about, which is enucleated, lacks a nucleus. But that's really just one type. Of cell, as you alluded to earlier, the T cells they do have nucleus and a genome, and they've undergone this hypermutation to express specific genes that allow it to target an antigen that enters the blood. But many groups have used uh, the hematopoietic stem cell system and uh, specifically the embryonic stem cell derived hematopoietic cells as a kind of factory to make blood, to make red blood cells that could be used as an alternative to donation, you know, blood, red blood cell donation um, that we're all very familiar with to kind of make a cell factory to generate blood in a dish. Yeah, I think um, blood is, in terms of stem cell therapies, it's already in the clinic. It's already curing people. Even uh, these stories about people who've been, quote, unquote, cured from AIDS by essentially killing off their their blood cells and then repopulating them. But um, yeah. I, I'd like to, you know, moving on, if you could maybe address some of the places where you think some of the more uh, near-term cures from blood, uh, this stem cell therapy uh, in the, the field of blood uh, is concerned, like leukemias or any sort of other diseases you could think of where stem cell therapy is going to essentially is on the horizon or actively being used in the clinic. Well, I think blood is really going to be the first go-round. One, like you said, the only stem cell therapy that's really bona fide is transplant, is hematopoietic cell transplant to treat cancer, to treat sickle cell anemia. And I think that because these cells are already familiar and because they're palatable, they've demonstrated known cures, I feel that this is going to be the first thing that's going to be amenable to widespread application. A few examples are, one, using the, the as Michelle Satterline's group has already shown, to use 
the uh, hematopoietic T cell types and modify them genetically so that they can attack tumors because that's not even a cell that you needs to colonize your body. You can use it and then tell it to commit suicide once it's done its job and it can be an off-the-shelf product that can be readily used and doesn't stand any possibility or, or doesn't pose any threat of having a long-term contribution to your somatic cell component or the cells in your body. The real risk with any kind of embryonic stem cell-based therapy and the fear, I think, that's out there in the FDA is that these are living products that are going to persist in your body. And one of the major fears is that these cells are going to ultimately form tumors, which oftentimes is exactly the type of disease you're trying to treat. So I think that having a cell type that can have a transient application in the body is really a powerful tool. But moving further, I think that the idea that you can get the entire hematopoietic system from a single cell also makes hematopoietic cells really a powerful tool because presumably if you can get the right cell, you can colonize and repopulate the entire hematopoietic system from megakaryocytes to red blood cells to T and B cells to myeloid derivatives. You can make all that from one cell. So unlike uh, other therapies like Yos, your use of uh, dopaminergic neurons, for instance, to try and cure Parkinson's, where you have to have an aggregate effect or trying to fix the heart by making new cardiomyocytes, you don't need a whole slew of cells to do the trick and you don't need them to engraft in the right way, in the right place. It's pretty much a shotgun approach. You throw in a bunch of cells. If one of them is the true hematopoietic stem cell, it'll comb to the right place in the bone marrow. It'll populate. It'll, it'll proliferate and give rise to daughter cells that can recolonize re the entire hematopoietic tree. Yeah, I remember so, that so, uh, in the project we worked together. That was the key word was engraftment. Engraftment. That was so, the key word. Let me, so let me just ask this question. Um, so I, I would say to you then, I would, I'm, I'm some person that I don't really know anything, but I know that bone marrow transplants work, right? So I would say then, why, why human embryonic stem cells? Why, why, do we, why do we need to do this? You know, what's the downfall of the current therapeutic strategy and what is the advantage of getting it from pluripotent cells or a reprogramming effect, you know? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the donors for hematopoietic stem cell in the current therapy are limited and the number of cells are limited. A real revolution recently in the field was use of cord blood or, you know, umbilical cord blood as a byproduct of birth to use that to treat patients uh, undergoing cancer therapy to repopulate their bone marrow. But there are a few problems with that. One, there's not a lot of blood in the cord and you could use that to treat small children because they had, you know, lower body mass, less need, less stem cells were needed to recolonize their system. But adults, you needed one or two, I mean, two or three bags even that are, that are three cords worth of cells to get it to work. So the supply is limited. Also, though, there was a lot of complications with bone marrow transplant because you're not getting it from yourself. One therapy actually has been to take out the stem cells, undergo an ablative chemotherapeutic approach, and then put them back in. But if your stem cells already have leukemia in them, taking them out and putting them back in is only going to return the tumor. So what typically you do is you take a healthy donor, you ablate your own system, and you transplant the donor cells into your body. But the problem with that is potentially graft-versus-host disease. 
So because it's not a perfect immune match sometimes, which is why you always have to get a bone marrow transplant from a closely related sibling or family member, you can get those stem cells give rise to T cells, which then attack your organs and ultimately cause organ failure. So the real key with embryonic stem cell therapy and the potential that's there is one, you can get an unlimited amount of cells. And two, with the developments of induced pluripotent stem cells, you can get a perfect genetic match that you can then cure of any disease like sickle cell anemia, for example, and then return to the body as a stem cell. And even without using an induced pluripotent stem cell approach, which may run into some obstacles regarding safety or tumorigenicity, you can, presume, you can potentially create a bank of all different bona fide embryonic stem cells so that they'll be ready off the shelf and just do an HLA or immune typing to see of a, of a slew of hundreds of different off-the-shelf stem cell lines which one is the closest immune match and it can be at the ready in the similar way that red blood cell and plasma donations are off the shelf, O negative, B positive, etc. You can get them and they can infuse them immediately rather than having to wait to recruit a donor. Well, I just found out I'm B positive. So let's be positive and move on uh, <laughs> to... The uh to the this the second part of our uh, questionnaire is uh, do you have any good uh, stories uh, from your graduate school or maybe being a PI or postdoc times you want to well, share? I have. I know that this is not really for a scientific scientific audience, but uh, I think I have a story that kind of illustrates the scientific process in microcosm, and it's from my graduate school days. It also shows kind of how far we've come in terms of our assays and our methodology. So back when I was in grad school and making me feel old, we used to do a lot of radioimmunotype assays where we would use radioactive materials to label a specific thing because we couldn't see it with the naked eye or we couldn't see it with a fluorescence or light-emitting molecule like we do now. We would use a radioactive substance and we would detect whether or not something was presence or absence by the a Geiger counter, essentially, reading the energy emitted by this radioactive molecule. In this case, it was something called P32, which is highly radioactive. And because it's so highly radioactive and can be real dangerous because you don't see it or smell it, uh, you have to really make sure that your workspace is totally clean after you work with it. Well, one day when I was working with it, I was pretty fanatical about keeping my bench not radioactive because, of course, I wanted to have kids one day and I wanted to not get cancer. So I uh, <laughs> was working with the material and I didn't know it because I always wore two pairs of gloves to try and really preclude any contamination. But I had broken through both the gloves when I was closing one of these little tubes and I had contaminated uh, myself with uh, this radioactive P32. And as I was cleaning my workspace after the fact, the Geiger counter just wouldn't shut up. I got this uh, rad away or some kind of reagent used to clean up the surface, and I was cleaning for about an hour. A Geiger counter kept clicking, kept clicking, kept clicking. Finally, I walked a bit down the hall to ask my PI what the hell I should do, and uh, the Geiger counter kept clicking, kept clicking. I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, uh, radioactive, this whole lab is radioactive, but... Uh, it occurred to me that perhaps it wasn't my space, it wasn't the lab, it was actually myself. I turned 
the Geiger counter on myself onto my thumb, and it was ringing, I mean, blazing hot, uh, you call it, which was radioactive. I ended up having to go to a nuclear uh physicist downstairs at Rockefeller <laughs> oh University. God. Why did you have a did you have a green thumb, a glowing thumb? Well after oh that, if I were God. if I were a superhero, they would call me the green thumb. I could tell you that much. Dude, after that, I don't know I if had... I'm gonna I don't know if I'm gonna give you any I'm not gonna give you any handshakes anymore, man. That's that's probably still buried in your thumb. Yeah, well it's funny. I actually had to the nuclear physicist his advice was to shield myself from my thumb so i had to wear this big apparatus around my thumb like a plastic eggshell pretty much around my thumb for the next three days until the geiger count actually came down a little bit you see what we do out there everybody us scientists for all y'all you see that we risk our thumbs for every day out there for you guys (laughs) for you for mankind we risk our thumbs well yo man Thank you. I appreciate it. Yo, that was good. Thanks, Daylon, because like this this blood field for me, like we're in the neural world and sometimes you get real uh, kind of you get those glasses that you get focused on your own stuff. But it's really important and it's sometimes very confusing. So uh, thanks for breaking that down and uh, good luck with your endeavors. I'm sure we'll be getting you on back on soon to keep us uh, abreast of all what's going on. Thanks, yeah. Man. Plus, you got to love the terminology in the field. A mega karyocyte. That just sounds amazing. I just love that word. The, the, the word, the terminology in the field is excellent. So, um, yes. yeah. Anyhow, so we're going to go for a little rant and we were wondering if you'd like to join in on us. Uh, Ranting, absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, let's Listen. ran it up baby let's get it going so we got to talk about the the lack of all the bloods in the field i think is what we got <laughs> well i mean <laughs> we should also talk about i mean we were gonna uh rant about the fact that the government is still shut down and there's probably some astronauts up in space wondering where everybody went but uh we're gonna talk about a unique topic that i think you and i could speak to being that we're both from uh, uh african descent uh partially and um so i was wondering what do you feel about the state of minorities in um in stem cell science in particular yes well there's there's the challenges we spoke about which is getting blood from stem cells and there's clearly another challenge which is getting some brown blood at the very least and hispanic blood into the into the sciences in general i think although there's been a lot of efforts made by the nih with director's award and and trying to enrich for uh, people of color in the biological sciences, I think they've kind of been a dismal failure. And I don't know if I would attribute that to a cultural deficit, you know, science isn't cool enough, or if it's just a lack of opportunity and a lack of real positive role models in the sciences for people of color. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd have to agree. I'm a little frustrated. I look at around at some of the stem cell foundations. I look at people who have gotten awards, and I see over five years maybe one or two brown people, and they're typically not of African-American descent but Indian or uh, of the Asian descent and uh, not really seeing much uh, diversity in terms of people getting grants and uh, the P- at the PI level. I, can, I can't even think of uh, any pioneer stem cell scientists of uh, color so I, I'm not sure what's going on if it's um, it's uh, it feels like there may be a little bit of lack of people applying and having the uh, you know the right grants and the skill set or if there is in fact some sort of discrimination or just when uh, black people are not talking the talk 
the the way the reviewers want to hear it. I'm not sure what's going on, but there's definitely a dearth in uh, uh, minorities, underrepresent. We should say underrepresent minorities because there are certain minorities that are overrepresented in science, but um, underrepresented minorities, mainly Black and Hispanic in America, at least um, in terms of uh, this getting grants and becoming PIs. I'm not sure what it is. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I heard a, a kind of sad uh, fact earlier in the year, which was that within the R01 granting process that kind of not, I don't know about controlling for the scientific excellence, but it was shown that just being black, uh, really hurt your chances of getting an R01, you know, putting aside oh, wait, the can science. I, Dylan, can I ask, can I ask something? I'm sorry, man. Cause I, obviously I'm not black. So I, I when I apply for an R01, I, I don't, it, there's no like checkbox in Daylon, is there? Like well, how do no, they know? How do they know who, which you know, if you're black or whatever? I mean, if you're, you know, some names are obviously, you know, Asian names might, but I mean, like, you know, you could be a black, a black man or a black woman, and and no one would know. But how how are they? How are they knowing who you are? Well, I think you underestimate maybe, or at least I know I I have underestimated how small a world science is and how. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true. Well, people know each other, but also oddly enough. I don't know. I'm going to say something that this really upset me. This is kind of unrelated to science, but I was talking to a friend of my, my uh, wife, so I won't mention her name because she would be terribly embarrassed by this, but she was speaking frankly and said that she will, she runs a store, a retail store, and she said that she can spot, based on the names on the resume, she will exclude people from contention from the interview process. And I said wow. to her, what do you mean the names on the resume? And I had to kind of get it out of her, but it was a euphemism for names that sound black, essentially, wow. are excluded from the process. So I think that there may be a kind of uh, subconscious bias that, that arises in people, or perhaps not. I mean, but I know one thing for sure, that it cannot be, and I refuse to believe, that black scientists are just not as innovative, bold, or excellent as their white, you know, Asian counterparts. So I think that there's certainly a cultural bias, whether it's it's conscious or subconscious. I think you can't argue with the facts. And I know that the NIH in some kind of mock review sessions have posited the idea of blinding people to the investigator names and affiliations to see if it would affect the process. And I think yeah, preliminary experiments have shown that it really does increase the percentage of people of color, specifically black and brown people yeah. who are qualified. I definitely, I definitely a- think it's, um, you know, a little bit of both. Um, because I mean, for whatever, 200, 300 years, uh, you know, black people couldn't even read in this country. So, you know, without being punished and, you know, you got to wonder what that does at an epigenetic level and also a cultural level, what it does to a society. So you have that legacy, but then on the other end, you have this, you know, the people reading the applications, this sort of inherent bias that some people may not even realize that they have uh, when they see a Hakeem or some sort of name, Shaniqua or something, and they're like, you know, automatically writing. It's a it's a negative column when they see a name that's too African or too exotic to be smart, 
You know what I mean? As opposed to, yeah. a, you know, a, a more Anglo name. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know what it is. I just know that there is a problem. Well, and I've been frustrated as a scientist applying and seeing the lack of diversity in the field and being, you know, negged a bunch of times on grants. It's, I mean, a lot of postdocs go through that. But uh, in terms of the field, I'm wondering why there's so little diversity. Well, I think I, I definitely agree, and so I think I'll, I'll kind of cap this rant with just some numbers. Um, this is from 2010, a breakdown of working U.S. scientists. Fifty-one percent are white men, and eighteen percent are white women. So that's close to seventy percent. Um, Asian men, thirteen percent, and Asian women make up five. So that's another eighteen percent. So you're almost at ninety percent between white and Asian. Black men, three percent. 3% black men, 2% um, 2% black women, and then the rest are uh, Hispanic men and women and others. So, uh, those and, are the numbers. And that's with affirmative that's with affirmative action in that's place throughout action. the 80s and 90s. So, uh, I I'm yeah, the numbers are abysmal, but uh, I have to say like I personally am a product of an NIH initiative uh, at Yale University amongst other places called the Post Bachelorette Research Education Program which was specifically aimed towards this problem, getting minorities into the sciences and in my case it was a success and other people that I met through the program they helped pay for uh, the Kaplan, you know, to pay for my GREs and all the process that costs a lot of money and coming out of you know college and coming from a single parent household that really meant a lot to be able to get the uh, you know the funding for the grant application process in the background to pay for the Kaplan that maybe other more wealthier people were able to afford this was uh, you know brought me up to par with some of my colleagues who were taking the Kaplan and all that stuff so um, it, there are some initiatives out there you have to find them they do exist and i'd like to thank the nih for that particular program um so on that why don't we wrap it up all right guys it was great talking to you hey man i really appreciate it i look forward to uh seeing you next week we're gonna grab that steak at del frisco's bone in bone in filet son yeah make sure you get the bone in and if you guys ever get a chance to see dr james speak he gives one of the best presentations you've ever seen it's always colorful and uh some of the best images you'll ever see so thanks for joining us and uh on that we'll uh take it out talk to you later chris See you guys soon. All right, soon. Yos, man. All right. All right. Take bye, care, fellas. Take care.